and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and other works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is a lover of classical languages and anthropology, which he studied in college. No doubt these skills helped him working for White Wolf, the famous gaming company behind Vampire the Masquerade and other such fine RPGs during the 1990s. More recently, he has been working as a guide and chief occult researcher of Haunted Asheville. Folks, I give you guys Tad McDivitt. Tad, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Absolutely. Thank you. So our point of focus in this episode is the mysterious Appalachian community of Asheville, North Carolina. This is certainly one of the most curious places I've yet encountered. And finding weird spots across this nation is something of an obsession of mine. Asheville is certainly one of the most remarkable places I've encountered. Located near the Great Smoky Mountains, Asheville is still fairly isolated to this day, and yet has a vibrant artistic scene and enough hippies that it can be mistaken for Portland at times, or at least Bisbee, Arizona. But there's some serious money there, and there has been for some time now, and inevitably it's been surrounded by various dark rumors and new age musings. We are going to do our best to unpack the reality from the myth around one of the most unique communities in this nation. In a short order, right? So, on that note, let us start the show. explanations as to how Asheville became the place that it is. 
when I took this uh, ghost walk with you when I uh, recently did my visit there. So let's start out with the original inhabitants, the Native Americans and those Scots Irish settlers who joined them. What did that do for the uh, the whole sort of culture of the area? Well, you know, as I kind of mentioned, originally the entire region is originally Cherokee and Shawnee territory, you know, native tribes. And uh, but when settlers first came to the area, um, originally, most of them were of a bit of a Scotch, Irish and Celtic descent. You can notice a little bit flipping through like the phone books of Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. You're going to see a lot of Celtic surnames um, and for the same reasons, a lot of the names of the towns and counties. Um, and I don't know, I, I often describe um, native ceremony. Um, and, and admittedly, I got to point out that I am a total outsider uh, here. I live fairly close um, to Cherokee, North Carolina. But as always, when it comes to Native culture, I am, you know, fascinated by it, but certainly an outsider looking in. But it has, I guess you could call it an animistic spiritual system. You know, kind of what they would do is they would isolate in sweat lodges, pushing themselves to endurance limits. And in this exhaustion and in this kind of altered state of mind, they were or at least they believed they were directly interacting with the spirits of nature. Um, and there is a lot of lore on native culture and native mysticism and spiritualism uh, that hint around these subjects. Um, so many myths and legends, um, stories of, you know, um, the many, many spirits and spiritual interactions throughout the entire region. But when the Scotch-Irish settlers came, now, you know, officially they were fleeing religious persecution. But I kind of like to point out how very, very Celtic superstitious they were. They were, you know, kind of salt over the shoulder, uh, don't break that mirror, put some liquor on the windowsill for the garden spirits kind of people. And very different than those Puritans or those more Salem uh, settlers. And what kind of happens is isolated in the mountains here, these two cultures, when they meet, a lot of their ritual ceremony and even their beliefs were very, very similar. Um, the belief in spirits, the belief in giving dedications, um, I guess you could call it a ritualized gestures of respect intended to gain the cooperation uh, mostly of the spirits of nature, which was very much kind of the cornerstone of their very agrarian way of life. Um, I, one of the, the things I like to point out is that the Cherokee have a legend of little spirit people called the Nunehi. And, you know, reading between the lines, they are very, very similar to the Celtic fair folk in terms of their personalities, their fickleness and their supernatural aptitudes and bond with the mystical side of the land. And that's, that's kind of where that 
that cornerstone happens and understand is that, you know, nestled as we are in the mountains of Appalachia, kind of isolated in the mountains, these two cultures merge, creating a version of mountain spiritualism and mysticism that's not completely Native American, but it's not completely European either. Um, various names for them, but my favorite, back in the 1800s, they were referred to as ditch witches, uh, which is, again, I think, uh, a reference back to their very agrarian uh, ceremonial nature. Uh, by the way, there was another question I had about this. Did you guys have any, um, like, uh, mounds or other uh, kind of indigenous earthworks along those natures? Uh, probably. <laughs> uh, that's one of those things to where, well, at least from the Native side, um, a lot of that information was lost. Um, there probably are um, elders that have kept family secrets, you know, on the reservation, but you know, after Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears, there was an overt attempted eradication of the knowledge of the culture. Yes, 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 yes. It seems um, a little bit everywhere. Yeah, and, and I think that's the main reason where, at least, again, us outsiders looking in barely even know where those sacred spots would have been. For all I know, my house sits on one. <laughs> You'd be surprised how often that happens. Um, and you said it was the Cherokee and the Swanee? Shawnee. Shawnee. Okay, okay, okay. Uh -huh. There is also a lot of interesting um, archaeological evidence that there was actually a lot of trade um, as far south as, you know, um, Mexico uh, pre-colonization. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there was a quite a bit of trade in North America. I mean, I know they've uh, also found evidence of trade going all the way down to Florida with the Tim Walkway and yep. saying, and, uh, like, and you also Aztecs and I don't think it's going too far out on a limb that along with that trade came a sharing of culture, cultural stories, and mysticism. Um, one of my favorite examples of that, and one of my favorite Cherokee legends is. Uh, this giant winged serpent of the waters uh, the Cherokee call the Uptena. And the depictions of it and the story of it is so very, very similar um, to Quetzalcoatl and the feathered serpents of South American lore. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, the Eastern Woodlands tribes, too, had the whole sort of mythos of the underworld, sort of great serpent and what have you. And then, of course, you know, you had the sort of overworld, uh, the dominion of the Thunderbirds and uh, yes. kind of Middle Earth where we exist now, ironically. Um, gosh, yeah, no, it's just such a fascinating topic with um, all of that uh, did, did the Cherokee have mythos too about like underground civilizations? I can't recall if it was uh... um yeah, a few um a lot of them were spirits of the earth related, uh which again is very similar to the Scotch Irish, you know, not really the kind of thing where actual physical people dug tunnels, but more mythical creatures had built entire networks um under the earth.
Um, which I almost wonder, uh, one of my favorites, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, there was a, an author named Manly Wade Wellman um, who did a really cool series of supernatural adventures set in the Western North Carolina region starring a folklore magic wielding balladeer named Silver John. And, and that was kind of one of the plot points that his chronicles would kind of circle back to um, the idea that there are ancient beings who are very, very interested in what is under the ground in a spiritual sense in the area. Yeah, no, that's, um, it's definitely something, I'm not familiar with that uh, book, but it's something that I do track in a lot of the uh, the different areas that I've been to. Of course, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I mean, yeah, it's, I find that there's often fascinating connections with um, myths of underground civilizations, of mines, of specific kinds of minerals and so forth found in, sp uh, in certain areas. It's, um, it's intriguing and then to see the kind of communities that grow up around them so and then on top of that around here there's the occasional cave hidden in a corner that someone might have stumbled upon <laughs> yeah yeah no the caves are always fascinating as well i mean of course that was uh, you know one of the earliest uh, spiritual centers that humans ever developed or even back before with the uh, neanderthals so um all right, in Asheville, everything old seems new again, as we've been kind of alluding to. So what about those gnarly drum circles that <laughs> you're so obsessed with downtown? They uh, This actually has kind of a deep ritualistic basis, though surely they are not aware of it. Could you break that down for us? Yeah, it's, uh, golly, I, I will often parallel downtown Asheville's culture to um, a theme park, <laughs> a perhaps beer themed theme park there are an insane number of breweries in the area um and yeah it's kind of funny right right downtown every friday night uh starting at right around eight o'clock uh in pritchard park there is a city sponsored drum circle you know it's not really something a bunch of kids threw together it is an official event that is on the scheduling at the courthouse and uh yeah i've always it, it's kind of a mixed bag um because it's on the one hand um it can be a little bit kitschy it is a bit of a draw uh for the tourists uh this kind of hip and happening activity downtown uh very leaning into Asheville's bohemian personality um and yeah, I, I, I never really <clears throat> truly know how much of the culture, the average visitor or, you know, a college kid who's just here for a few years realizes this indigenous to the area, although most certainly Native American culture used percussion as a spiritual instrument. But uh, golly, throughout the world, um, Africa south america even pre-christian europe the celts and the vikings did the same thing the idea being that the sound of the drums uh captures the attention of ambient spirits that might be flitting and flying around the percussion brings them in and after 
And after the spirits have been brought in, that's when they would start the next part of the ceremony, which would be dancing, music, uh, storytelling, depending on the culture, maybe a little bit of liquor, sugar, and tobacco. Uh, because after the spirits have arrived, you want to put them in a good mood. You want to placate them, uh, give them a, de a, a dedication. Uh, and the idea was to put them in two literally good spirits. And then after that, that was when they would start their much more formal prayers. Um, but yeah, the idea of drums being a spiritual instrument, um, the, the circle having many meanings. Um, a circle is certainly emblematic of community, um, but the circles have a lot of spiritual significance um, not just in terms of bringing people together, uh, but to symbolize the world itself uh, as a boundary for the sake of protection. Um, you know, there's a lot of spiritual undertones uh, to this weekly ceremony that has become kind of a, a, a normal piece of Asheville life. Now, you mentioned that the city, like, officially sponsored this. Do you have any idea why exactly, of all things, they chose, like, a drum circle? Um, well, I think it was spontaneous drum circles of the like were erupting all over town. Um, <laughs> again, Asheville's, there's four colleges in the area. Um, UNC Asheville is most certainly a liberal arts focus. Um, Asheville just probably since the early 90s has had just kind of had that kind of culture to it. And I think it was, you know, an attempt to make a method out of the madness. You know, um, all of the music, the concerts and the scenes were creating a draw for downtown restaurants and shops and I think over time, it just kind of became an official thing that, you know, when they put it in the park in the middle of town, it draws people out. And, you know, the local shops, you know, especially the bars and the restaurants that get really busy afterwards, all kind of benefit. And it was just a bit of a case of creating a bit of a method to something that was already growing. Um, similarly, Asheville has a lot of buskers. Um, there are street musicians throughout the town, and a lot of people visiting don't necessarily immediately really realize it, but all of the downtown musicians, you know, they have licenses. You know, it's actually an organized process. They, they pay monthly for a busking license. There is a system to determine where they're going to be and for how long, so that way the performers don't stack on top of each other. But, you know, at first glance, it might look like this very organic, creative, bohemian scene, but actually it's it's very, very organized. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, so something else very odd was the, the quartz uh, deposit supposedly there. I mean, everybody oh, yeah. wanted to talk to me about the quartz when I was in Asheville. So what says you about that? Tab? Yeah, geographically, there are huge deposits of quartz under our feet everywhere in this region. 
Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing on just a purely scientific level, but also there's always been an undercurrent of spiritualism uh, that goes hand in hand with it too. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the works of Manly Wade Wellman, uh, one of the books he wrote, which I believe was called um, After Dark, uh, focuses on these fascinating uh, cat-eyed, bourgeois, tuxedo-wearing humanoids that are just fascinated with the power that goes with the quartz underneath of the ground. And, and a gist of the story is them trying to buy up land because they want the mystical power of the courts. And I can't help but wonder if it's, you know, an allegory for, you know, the city and corporate interests that are kind of making grabs for the large swaths of country land. But it's really interesting because the, the spiritual value of the courts was kind of one of the centerpieces of the story. Um, most certainly, the quartz and the power of crystal, uh, both scientifically and spiritually, has been one of the reasons for Asheville's New Age culture being very prolific. Uh, my boss, Joshua P. Warren, author of ha Haunted Asheville, is very much under the mind that the humongous quartz deposits is a re one of the reasons for the high frequency of phenomena and why there is so much of a proliferation of that you know witchcraft and spiritualism that revolves around trafficking with spirits that there's you know perhaps a connection there that causes this area to be just kind of paranormally supercharged um a lot of locals often refer to it as a paranormal vortex um i always get a little iffy about the language there <laughs> vortex being a physics principle and for a vortex to happen there must be a drain a hole and and if there is such a phenomena i always chuckle to myself going you know if there is a vortex going on Perhaps the portal at its center is what we should be dialoguing about. <laughs> but, uh, golly, it, the area brings uh, mystics from all over who will just go into different areas of the National Forest. Um, different properties around offer camping excavations and treks just to look for exactly those crystals for various spiritual healing and mystical purposes yeah it's uh well i believe you were familiar with it but with penny royal um which kind of followed the podcast which follows a lot of the happenings in uh somerset kentucky i mean this is kind of another area yes. it was awash with like high weirdness and whatever of course it was also shown in hellier the uh the netflix or excuse me the amazon series but what's interesting is that was like a, you know, again, another one where they kind of attributed to the quartz there. So I find it kind of fascinating that there is that overlap. Um, I have seen that in quite a few areas that I've been to where it does seem like there is this um, 
conjunction of really strange phenomena and frequently peculiar individuals. Uh, in the case of Somerset, um, having looked into the history of the town a little bit, um, it seems like most of the founders were actually Pennsylvania Dutch. Yeah. Uh, specifically, you know, kind of all into the powwow kind of stuff. So yeah. Although the, I like to point out that there there seems to, at least in the 1800s, there was a lot of overlap between the Pennsylvania Dutch that, so, that settled the northern part of the Appalachian chain and those Celts that settled the southern part of the Appalachian chain. Um, a lot of traffic and a lot of merging of those rituals and ceremonies, especially how the Pennsylvania Dutch would use a lot of hexagrams and um code ciphers as part of their protection rituals yeah it was definitely a fascinating melting melting pot to be sure um well all right so uh, then there was an additional ingredient added to it and it was a very strong one at that it goes by the name of the vanderbilts and uh, oh yes some other uh, new yorkers <laughs> who started to move in and uh, Asheville around the turn of the last century so yeah, was, what did that do for the community the well it it honestly was the cornerstone of what would chart Asheville becoming the true city that it became um it was the late 1800s when the house was under construction. Um, and I don't That's know, it's kind of like this, he's referring to, by the way. Yes, yes the, the Biltmore estate. Uh, and if any one of you out there get a chance, I most certainly suggest taking a look. The, the Biltmore estate is worth seeing at least once. It is one of the rare few true American castles. Um, but it's kind of funny. I, I, I like to point out, um, and this is kind of a slippery slope here, but just pointing out how different um, commerce was in the 1800s. You know, all of us are live, are much more used to, you know, a lot of regulation, a lot of uh, overwatch, you know, FDR's New Deal. Uh, kind of hammers down a framework, but, you know, the days of Vanderbilt and Carnegie and Rockefeller, you know, it was like the Old West in a financial sense. And, you know, there was no, there wasn't really any such a thing as zoning or, you know, a lot of the infrastructure uh, laws and regulations, they just, they just didn't exist. And so what happens is, you know, Vanderbilt chooses um, here, middle of nowhere, Appalachia, to build the jewel of his railroad monopoly empire. And when he chooses the area, you know, all of this New York money starts flooding into the area. You know, a lot of his friends, a lot of the wealthy New York scene. Uh, good examples of that include E.W. Grove. That builds the Grove Park Inn, uh, Fred Seeley. Um, when you visit Asheville, um, you'll notice the not only a lot of the Art Deco Gothic architecture that is a whole lot more like old New York and very different than the rest of, you know, at least Western North Carolina, most of Appalachia, 
but um with that come with that money comes the culture you know you can walk around Asheville and see our flat iron building and wall street and battery park and lexington avenue um broadway the street names the aesthetic of it is very much taken um from that new york culture so i kind of like to point out that you know Asheville very likely would have stayed a very rural, sleepy country community had uh, Biltmore Estate not cropped up and kind of orbiting around that fortune grew Asheville as we know it today uh, with its liberal arts universities, um, with its architecture, and at least up until the stock market crash, uh, there was a bit of a wealthy elite scene uh, in 1920s. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald were regulars. Uh, in fact, Zelda Fitzgerald died here in Buncombe County um, up off of Zillicoa in the Montford Historical District. Um, so it's, yeah, you can't live in Asheville and not palpably feel that we are all living in the shadow of that, that railroad empire that built little new york aka asheville to begin with so long ago and that's one of the things that made asheville what it is is that the income was the railroad so there wasn't really any any internal farms or factories um in fact from the perspective of the elites at the time um the beautiful gorgeous Smoky Mountain background aesthetic was the point. So certainly they're not going to build a factory in their backyard and ruin their gorgeous view. So a lot of the local ecology and flora and fauna ends up having better preservation than a lot of areas of the country that were just kind of bulldozed, you know. Um, and to this day, we have retrofitted uh, that early 20th century decadence into a very thriving tourism industry. So I was actually totally unaware of how hippified Asheville is. I went there to uh, do research in one of the community's more notorious residents who nobody really seems to have heard of there, uh, Mr. William Dudley Paley. Oh, yes. What was his uh, time like there? Oh, golly, he was, if I remember the timeline correctly, he first showed up on the scene in the 1920s, uh, and then his final years in the 1940s and early 50s were kind of ridden with a lot of scandal. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Asheville's, its evolution into being this bohemian hippie culture wasn't always that way. You know, if you were to come to downtown Asheville in the 1970s uh, and a good part of the 80s, it was a very, very different place with a very different culture. The 80s in Asheville, like a lot of places in the country, downtown was a bit of an urban blight. Uh, all of the commerce was settled around the shop, the mall, at Tunnel Road and the suburbs were what was booming. I think it was really the mid, early to mid 90s 
is when I don't know in the coattails of that grunge alt rock early 90s wave Asheville just kind of exploded with artistic alternative counterculture um and in fact I kind of joke it's like it's been so hippie counterculture for so long I question if it even counts as counterculture anymore <laughs> um during oh Pelly is such a bizarre fascinating study um he had a printing press and an office right golly not even a block from the front gates of the Biltmore estate and what we call Biltmore Village um I think the building it's really oddly wedge shaped building I think over the course of my life I've seen it it was a post office for a while it has been a fondue uh restaurant it's like an Indian uh restaurant right now. yeah I think now it is an Indian restaurant um it's right next to the fanciest McDonald's that I've ever seen in my life. It oh actually has like a yeah. piano in it. The grand piano. A funny sidebar. <laughs> when Asheville experienced incredibly terrible rains and flooding and Biltmore Village there was nearly underwater, I have witnessed the McDonald's grand piano floating down the Swannanoa River. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was a rather surreal moment. I would imagine so. <laughs> but uh yeah, Pelly. Um, in fact, it's kind of funny that we talk about him because this he came up in conversation recently, casually. Um give you a little bit of background. In the nineteen twenties, especially, um with the wealthy elite, um, especially a lot of those that were swirling around the Vanderbilt scene, you know, that Victorian spiritualism was all the rage. And I know in the early days of the 20s, um, Pelly was seen poking around that early, you know, it wasn't fully paranormal research yet, you know, they... I think it was called Theosophy Circles, um, the era of the Golden Dawn, um, uh, Blavatsky's heyday. And and Pelly was kind of gravitating around those scenes, kind of fascinated by the spiritualism at the time. Um, later, I think this happened in the 50s, um, you, you know about the the silver shirts was their name yeah well the silver shirts was prior to the second world war like uh Haley actually was pretty much prohibited from any kind of um political activism after he was um incarcerated in the wake of the sedition trial like after they let him out i think it was around like 1950 that was when he really went um yeah yeah with like soul craft and the ufo thing and what have you um yep yep it's he's really interesting in that regard because this is you know kind of the area you're describing is when he was um working as a screenwriter in Hollywood 
So that whole area was awash with like theosophical stuff and, and oh yeah, that kind of stuff at the time. And he arguably still kind of is. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still. I mean, but it was always sort of ground zero for the theosophical yeah. society. Um, but yeah, he had essentially like an equivalent of like a near death experience, and he thought uh, that he had been contacted uh, by beings from Sirius, which is interesting. Um, that was that. Uh, that was that. Or whether or not he. Oh, go ahead. This was something that we were bringing up not too long ago. Pelly uh, was brought up as an example. Also, the Thule Society. And it's one of those weird things to where you wouldn't think it. But occasionally, the fringes of the New Age mysticism will overlap with alt-right philosophies. I mean, in certain circles, and I've seen it's kind of seen it happen, the leap from spiritual purity to racial purity happens. And, you know, some of those corners can get a little dark. And I think that Pelly is a prime example. Well, I mean, for me, what really jumped out too about his time in Asheville, I mean, obviously, like you were saying, the fact that his, you know, publishing house was right there next to the Vanderbilt uh, estate there in Biltmore Village. Uh, which I believe at that particular time, too, this would have been like in the 1930s. Um, yeah. You know, that was a pretty uh, exclusive area. I mean, it still is, but I mean, I believe it still is. But yeah, even more it's right so next then. to the hotel. So, I mean, he's got this, you know, very nice uh, publisher right there. It's around the mid 30s. The Vanderbilts were one of the families that uh, were closely linked to the so-called business plot, which General Smedley Butler later exposed, among other people. And as you say, they've got the railroads right there. Um, this is around the time Paley's got his militia, the silver shirts going. Yeah. Uh, it makes you wonder, you know, I mean, how many of those guys could he have gotten out to D.C. Um, <laughs> on the railroads at the time in a certain period? Right. Right, right. I didn't even thought about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was definitely interesting in that regard, um, you know, because like you're saying, it is sort of an isolated area. So um, saying hypothetically, you know, it might have been, a, you know, if you were going to maybe stash a paramilitary force for something nefarious, I mean, it's right there next to a railroad track. And, you know, mm -hmm. and there are uh, I, an uncountable number of tucked away corners in in these mountain valleys yeah there's um there's definitely a lot of things that you could uh infer from looking at some of the locations paley inhabited and the uh, uh -huh. time frame of all of this Crying sparrows sing, feathered wings, 
lift them high all through the skies, and we see you and I reflected in their eyes.
are just so many remarkable structures in Asheville, but um, there's, I mean, maybe to some extent, quote unquote, three castles there. I mean, obviously none are anywhere near on the level of the Biltmore. Of course, few, um, you know, uh, structures in the United States are, but um, so, but there are some other noteworthy ones. So let's start with Seeley's Castle. This yeah, Seeley's Castle is uh, probably, there's no other building in Asheville that I know of that has more rumors swirling around it quite the way Seeley Castles. Um, I believe Fred Seeley was the name of who it's named after. And if I remember my history correctly, Seeley was, was uh, connected to E.W. Grove. Um, if I'm remembering the history, I believe that Seeley actually worked for Grove um, in a greater management uh, over his multiple hotels in the area, the Battery Park Hotel and the Grove Park Inn. Um, I've been seeing Seeley's Castle from a distance uh, since I first moved to Western North Carolina in 1988. Uh, the entire grounds are fenced and i mean you know barbed wire they really really don't want anyone getting in there uh which doesn't surprise me because hand in hand with that shrouded mystery uh i have been raised by generations of legends and stories of strange rituals and ceremonies uh, being seen performed from a distance on the grounds um, personally, I have never seen anyone there. Uh, I have never seen cars come in and out, but since I've moved here, there have been stories about strange esoteric organizations and rituals happening in and around the castle. And I haven't the slightest idea. I've never been able to either verify or, you know, no, nothing yay or nay whatsoever, um, other than a lot of local rumors and conjecture about what may or may not be going on inside that castle. Yeah, no, I know the ownership of it was pretty interesting too. It was, um, it was like what a Pentecostal sect had it, like what in from the 50s, I think, up to like the early 80s or something. And it was, I remember correctly, it was known as like Overlook Castle uh, during that period. Uh, which I thought was obviously, you know, gonna invokes a little bit of the shining there. So, <laughs> oh, yes. A lot of the buildings around here have that, you know, um, that old ambiance that's not unlike um, Stanley's in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, certainly. All right. So how about Zealandia and the remarkable bridge leading up to it? Yeah, there is quite a lot of lore. Zealandia sits on top of Bowcatcher Mountain. Um, I've actually been inside of it. Um, I've had the pleasure um, of being able to accompany Joshua Warren on an investigation inside the building. Um, we probably... the tile work inside the building is just decadent it's amazing uh probably the most anomalous readings and i guess there there could be some scientific reasons for this but in in inside the castle in the area where 
the coal chutes are there are just a high number of really weird ambient electromagnetic phenomena which might have something to do with you know the deposits of the coal over the years it might be the quartz under the ground you know there's a a lot of theoretical reasons for that but you know notably the electromagnetics is just really bizarre in the lower levels of zelandia um probably the most locally well-known facet is the bridge which we have come to call helen's bridge named after the spirit that is said to haunt the spot whose backstory is interrelated with uh zelandia castle uh, the story goes that uh um young helen was the lady of the manor and after her daughter perished in a very decadent 1920s party in the uh building it's just said that uh in a deep despair helen forms a noose walks down to the bridge and hangs herself off the edge so we have just a prolific amount of uh ghost stories out of all of, of the ghost stories that i tell on the haunted Asheville tour Helen's Bridge probably has the most prolific number of modern investigations. Generations of local high school students have been making the test of bravery, walking up to Helen's Bridge that sits right next to Zelandia. Um, people have talked about seeing apparitions of her along the bridge and under it. Um, I've heard people talk about hearing a woman crying and asking questions about the state of her family. Um, I've also heard multiple stories, and this was actually verified by a local AAA tow truck driver. But when teenagers will be disres being disrespectful and taunting her and cussing her, she has an odd habit of killing car batteries. Interesting. No, I, I definitely made my way up there, and it's uh, quite an interesting uh, place. I mean, also, some of the graffiti on it, too, is curious as well. Um, but yeah, it's quite striking as you're driving up on the road, going over it, and then, of course, there's sort of like a little area where you can go and look at it. And uh, I did catch a glimpse of Zealandia, too. Um, yeah, it's definitely quite a place. Um, yeah, just with all those uh really amazing manners that are out there oh yeah and and again these are you know uh zelandia and Seely's castle they're, uh, they're in that like what they're really kind of exclusive neighborhood up in the hills right um, oh yes uh off of bowcatcher mountain okay. um okay. hilariously names this that is where a young lady went to catch her bow hence Bowcatcher Mountain. It really is that cheesy. <laughs> oh, I mean, West Virginia, we have stuff like Dead Squirrel Road and what have you. So, I mean, I guess it's it could be worse, man. <laughs> All right, so let's get in then to the the most legendary structure in Asheville, the Biltmore. So, uh, what's the rundown of this thing? Um, it, it hilariously, um, 
I haven't been to the Biltmore in many years. Uh, truth be known, it's a, it's, it's a lot like, I guess, uh, people in Orlando feel about Disney World. You know, it's this fascinating thing at first, but over the years, you're like, meh, it's there. Um, <laughs> but it's still a gorgeous building. Um, years ago, um, when I was doing a lot more um, taxi cab work, um, I've gone up there a few times for pure work reasons. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Deerfields, the uh, kind of a restaurant and uh, gathering center, my senior and junior proms happened on the Biltmore Estate. I guess that's one of the perks of uh, going to high school here locally. Um, yeah, the Biltmore Estate is the most expensive state estate in North America. Um, but I like to point out, you know, it's not the brick and the mortar or the wine or the horses. It's the artifacts. It's the Rembrandt paintings. It's the medieval tapestries. It's the Ming Dynasty vases, you know, is really where the price tag comes from. Uh, but the estate itself is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, a lot of movies have happened there, um, been filmed there. I think a lot of like a lot of people have seen the Biltmore Estate in the backdrop of a movie without realizing it was the Biltmore Estate. Um, and as I said, you know, in a financial and cultural sense, it was most certainly the defining feature that a lot of Asheville would kind of revolve around in its early years. Um, they do an absolutely gorgeous Christmas presentation. Um, if you ever get a chance to come up and check it out at that time of year, um, it is, whew, they go all out at Christmas time. Worth a look. Now, I had heard that they had changed the garden somewhat since like the 90s. It's, it's possible. Um <laughs> I'll have to admit that I, I haven't given the gardens that much scrutiny over the years. Um, but I do know they have been, they're, they're in a chronic state of upgrading here, um, changing here. Because, you know, it is, firstly, it was built in the 1880s. So, you know, much like the rest of Asheville, you know, if you want to keep that five-star uh, decadence rating, you have to upgrade the infrastructures. Uh, so it, it wouldn't surprise me that the gardens would see a lot of work. I do know that um, over the years, especially back in the 70s and in the 1980s, um, the tourism that revolves around the Biltmore Estate um was most certainly a financial lifeline um, during the tougher years. Um, these days, I mean, the Biltmore State is still going strong. Don't get me wrong. Um, but Asheville has certainly grown and, you know, has a massive microbrewery industry and uh, various multiple facets of tourism all around. Um but I don't think that Asheville as a city would have been able to survive as well as it did 
you know, especially in the 70s and 80s, were it not for the estate and the historical significance and tourism revenue that it generated. And so can you get into the uh, the Biltmore so-called Halloween room? This, uh, this thing is just really weird um i didn't even actually realize i was in the halloween room when i uh went into it for the tour i just remember thinking man this thing is creepy as hell oh yeah um golly it's been a very long time um since i've been in it it certainly has kind of a creepy ambiance to it uh there are there's a lot of, I don't know, I, I guess the best way to describe it is it's almost like French Harlequin artwork. I'm not quite uh, how to describe the aesthetic to it. Um, but everyone does kind of agree that uh, <laughs> it, it's creepy. You can kind of tell that um, maybe they were shooting for folklore um but it just has this really really crazy strange ambiance to it um i think and at least this is this is where the local stories go back to um stories go that the halloween room has this particular eerie feel to it is because back in the 1920s um you know it was also again paralleling to those theosophical societies it is where lady edna candler the psychic medium and astrologer uh would do seances uh in that very room and it's kind of a controversial topic um depending on who you ask I mean, on the one hand, uh, the Biltmore Estate want to keep a very formal, um, family-friendly ambiance, uh, but on the other hand, it is a fascinating uh, little piece of history about how um, the the Theosophical Societies and those Victorian spiritualism ambiance kind of spread throughout a lot of wealth culture in the 1920s. And, you know, I've always heard stories that all of the creepy artwork that is throughout the room was kind of intended to be that way since 1925, um, to be the backdrop for those kind of mystical, let's talk to some spirits, is something they would do in 1925 as a Halloween activity during one of the galas during the 19, during the Roaring Twenties. It's weird by our modern standards, but it was it was the culture at the time. Yeah, no, the artwork is incredibly unusual, and it's also because it's well, the room is in the basement of the Biltmore, uh, which in and of itself kind of gives it this dungeon-like uh, feeling to it. 
Yeah. And then on top of that, I mean, you know, we're with the artwork. I mean, it's not like they're paintings or anything. It's actually like drawn directly onto the walls. Yep. They, they're, they're, they're more murals. Yeah. 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 And it's. And you can kind of feel that they were going for maybe a French folklore style of, you know, maybe Harlequin bards and, you know, maybe a Hans Christian Andersen kind of mood. It has like almost a childlike quality to it. I mean, yes. that's like the and that makes weirdest it even thing more about creepy. it. Yes, exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, you almost feel like they, they brought like little kids down there or something for the seances and just, I mean, it's like, what is this? <laughs> yes. Um, also kind of worth noting, uh, one of the very prolific psychic medium and astrologers of the area who was an attendee of a lot of those parties and worked a lot with the family was lady edna candler who was related to the new york candlers who at the time in the 20s owned coca-cola because you don't meet the vanderbilts unless you come for money and uh I always thought it was kind of funny when, you know, when you're contemplating all of this and then realizing, oh, yeah, cocaine was one of the main ingredients in Coca-Cola in the 1920s. So when we're talking about, you know, the social scene and the parties of that point in time, we got to remember, you know, that, you know, the soda pop had cocaine in it. Things got very wild and very decadent. Because, you know, a lot of the regulation that we know today just simply didn't exist yet. Yeah, you uh, definitely get the sense there were some very uh, strange parties that went on at that place, to put it mildly. Um, I'm guessing another location, too, where they had uh, a couple of pretty good ones in their day was the story Black Mountain College. Oh, yes. This is people like Ray Johnson, Buckminster Fuller attending it. In general, it seems to have uh, had uh, one of the most vibrant surrealist scenes outside of New York or L.A. during the interwar years. So what's this place's story and why did it uh, close? Um, You know, uh, why did it close? That's I I, I don't have a really solid answer. Um, That's kind of one of those, uh, I guess, hippies don't talk about finances all that much. But yes, culturally, Black Mountain College absolutely had such a huge impact on why Asheville would become that bohemian hippie culture that it is today. Um, Most certainly, Black Mountain College would impact education in the area. Um, You know, there are a lot of uh, charter schools uh, my son even goes to a nature school that have a much more organic student-led curriculums, um, which are very different than the more rigid structures. And absolutely, the inspiration and the culture comes from Black Mountain College in the, golly, I think it was the 70s when they closed down, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think it was, it might actually have even been a little sooner than that, but yeah, it was sometime around that, uh, general time frame. But, and it's just, yeah, the, the hub of eclectic artists who are thinking 
outside of the box, you know, kind of doing away with rigid structure, rigid structures in teaching. Um, almost like not that the word was used all that much back in the 1950s, but the whole scene at Black Mountain College was a bit anti-establishment, which was very much outside of the norm in the 50s. Certainly, especially for a college like that. I mean, in the uh, specific region that it was in, which again is why I find it just so fascinating. All these uh, these characters were kind of drawn to that area over the years. Yeah, I don't know if it is just the aesthetics and the mood of the Spoky Mountains. Um, as mentioned earlier, the quartz, which most certainly does interesting things to the electromagnetics of the area, might be a factor um but yeah black mountain college was you know probably the seed that Asheville's modern artistic kind of hippie and hipster bohemian heart grew out of that black mountain college seed all right, so how about the rumors of uh, Ashland have Asheville having um, a tunnel system beneath it? Uh, what can you tell us about that? Absolutely. It is an abandoned subway project. During, uh, yeah, it goes back to the Vanderbilt days. Um, in the early 20th century, all the New York elites wanted a New York-style subway, um, and they started... But then they quickly realized that mountain rock is extremely difficult. And for financial and pragmatic reasons, they gave up on uh, completing it. But uh, scraps of it absolutely sit there underneath um, the main um, pack square is a big circular underground chamber that was intended to be uh, the roundhouse. Uh, the main station downtown. Um, there is, to my knowledge, I know of one large tunnel heading north uh, that gets as far as the Grove Arcade. Um, I heard some stories that when they were doing renovations on the building behind the Grove Arcade, which is the uh, location for the Asheville newspaper, the Asheville Tribune, um, they were doing work in the basement and they cracked through into the remains of the tunnels um, that go underneath of it. Uh, and there used to be all kinds of points like right around uh, Wall Street uh, was a little spot we used to call Cat Alley um, that accesses the underground tunnels. Uh, it was named Cat Alley because before Asheville had trash pickup, all the restaurants downtown just kind of threw their scraps there, which, of course, attracted the rats, which, of course, attracted the cats. Um, there's uh, cute little statues of cats around the area there in Wall Street to kind of commemorate it. But there are all kinds of local access points. Uh, it's also worth noting that... Um, in the late 1800s and early 20th century, that whole downtown spot had a gaslight street lamp system before electricity had been invented. And so also, you know, the, the pipes and the infrastructure for 
the street lamps also required maintenance tunnels. So there is, between the abandoned subway and the remains of those gaslight tunnels, there actually is quite the labyrinth underneath of Asheville. Um, the reason none of it is accessible to the public is largely safety concerns. Um, story always goes that uh, during the prohibition years in the 30s, speakeasies were popping up down there. Um, so the place just kind of became a festering point um, for crime being out of the way. So for the sake of public safety and public health, um, all of the trap door points and the, the, the leads in have been cemented over. Um, but I believe there are a few. Um, there's a few old buildings downtown that still have trap doors and access points down there. Uh, to my understanding, the Asheville police still occasionally wander down there um, just to make sure that there's nothing going on that shouldn't be going on. Or, you know, hopefully there won't be, you know, dead vermin causing problems, but it's just kind of routine checks. But you know, law enforcement still goes down there every now and then, uh, which is where I've seen pictures uh, down there that law enforcement have taken and shared with us. Oh, I'm sure we'll probably get into that in a second. Um, there was one other thing about downtown, I uh, now that it had just occurred to me. So when I was walking down, the, I can't remember the street's name, it leads down to that kind of intersection where there's those two record stores, one on either side of the street. But before you get into that, there's like these um these like little doors and like houses and stuff, like almost like for gnomes or something like that. Yeah, fairy houses. What's, what's up with that? They're fairy houses? Yeah, fairy houses. That's, that's what we call them. Little little pieces of art, you know, kind of based on the premises that, you know, uh there's little fairies all over Asheville and they have their little boutiques and apartments just like us big folk. <laughs> Yeah, that is right on the corner of Lexington Avenue there. Okay, Lexington, Lexington, okay. So, like, when did they start putting those in, then? Oh, I don't know, around the 90s, uh, they started kind of becoming kitschy and popular, and they just kind of started up, popping up all over, I guess, and the suburbs have their lawn gnomes, and Asheville has their fairy houses. Interesting. <laughs> Walking in the setting sun, we've begun to see patterns 
Woven through our lives, silver threads trail behind, sewing soul to mine. County Jail has one of the strangest cryptid sightings I've heard. Uh, could you break that one down for us? Yes, I can. 
and uh, just for the record, it is Bunkum. Oh, uh, Bunkum. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, pronunciation uh, definitely are my yeah. strong suit, so, but thank the, you. The term bunk is derivative of Bunkum County. Um, Asheville politician um, Reynolds invented filibustering. <laughs> so bunkum being synonymous with that's just bunk comes from the fact that uh, one of our local politicians invented filibustering. Funny piece of detail there. Nice. But that'll help you remember bunkum. <laughs> but yes, the uh, we call this story the ghoul of the old jail, um, which happens in these days. The building is called Pax Tavern. Originally, however, um, that spot was the location of Asheville's original jail. Um, kind of interestingly worth noting years, years ago before downtown Asheville rent prices got too spiraling out of control, um, we had set up a mystery museum, um, right behind Pax Tavern in the general area that this happened in. Um, there's all kinds of other odd, strange events that have happened in the area. But uh, the ghoul is a fascinating one. Um, it happened in, I think, yeah, all the way back in 1907. Um, and, and keep in mind, we kind of discovered this by accident. We were researching a totally different case. Uh, we were researching a gunfight that happened nearby on Eagle Street in 1906. And of course, we're doing this during a point in time where, you know, Wikipedia is not really a thing. Uh, so we're doing the research old school back in the early 90s going through microfish. So three days worth of newspaper article, Friday, Saturday and Sunday um, is where all of our information comes from. Um, I wish that there were someone still alive who saw it to talk to but alas when i discovered the story everybody that had a first-hand experience had long since passed um where the original jail and police department sits um kind of a rectangular shaped structure cut into two squares one square being the police department one square being the jail and it kind of had this wrought iron uh door that would seal off the jail uh friday's article starts explaining that two inmates are sitting at their desk um hearing or two officers are sitting at their desk and hearing the inmates hollering and screaming they get up turn the corner and they see what what is described in the newspaper article as an imp like creature imp hyphen l-i-k-e that's jumping around the bars and the policemen realize that the creature is on their side of the bars and they look at each other and they're like, Oh hell no. And they lock the iron door, sealing the creature in a hallway that kind of has the uh, cells to the sides. The inmates themselves are like clutching the back walls, putting pillows over their heads. So they don't got to make eye contact with it. 
Um, and the two officers write down what they experience and have a runner take their account to the Asheville newspaper. And that's how Friday's article comes out. Saturday's article comes out. And so Saturday morning, the guy who decides to print the article, well, he wants to see it for himself. So he gets down there Saturday morning. Sure enough, the creature is still there. So Saturday's article is a bit more verbose. We have a professional writer this time. Um, the creature was described as being about uh, three and a half feet tall, coarse salt and pepper fur, needle-like teeth, upturned nose, big pointed ears, but hands like a human being's with thumbs and digits capable of manipulating objects. Um, also included in Saturday's article, one of the inmates, a Reverend G.W. Whitaker, made an attempt to communicate with it. Um, and his quote cracks me up. He said, and I quote, the creature made nary an utterance of human syllable. And proceeds to explain that the creature's just squealing and howling and just jumping around the bars. Um, and then, and that is saturday's article finally sunday's article comes out which is very short um sunday's article explains that uh two of the inmates swore that they were staring directly at the creature about 11 30 in the morning right about when this church bells are starting to go off summoning everyone to church and the creature just starts to go from solid to translucent and then eventually completely invisible, fading from view. Um, worth noting in Sunday's article, every single one of the inmates swore that they were going to give up gambling and drinking after witnessing such a thing. And of course, the very last line is the Lord works in mysterious ways. And that is the story of the ghoul of the old jail. Um, as I said, happened back in 1907. And, you know, I always joke that I'm probably going to die wondering exactly what the hell kind of creature that was. To wrap up, um, I have heard rumblings uh, for years of the Asheville being kind of a mecca for cult activities, some of the satanic variety. So what's up with all of that? That is always a very mixed bag um with a lot of different facets and sides um probably the trickiest part to answering that question is a definitive technically speaking what is satanism because there's a lot of different sub factions there are self-declared satanists there's luciferians i've met satanists that are actually just kind of atheists with a sense of humor um but also we're still in north carolina which is very much evangelical territory so from their perspective everything new age hippie is inherently satanic because it's not protestant so <laughs> it's always becomes a little bit of a tricky when someone or anyone around here kind of claims that there's satanic activity you know, it might be true, creepy, you know, malevolent 
ceremony, but it also it might be a pride march. It's so very relative <laughs> to who's saying, um, if that kind of makes sense. Well, um, how about like some of the uh, rumors around like Seely's castle and um, yeah. oh, I think it was more the well, I actually it was more Seely's castle, but I think sometimes too the Biltmore is like linked with that as well. I think what with the internet rumors started around like two like the early knots, right? Yeah, yeah, about that. And and I grew growing up here in the late eighties and early nineties. There have always been rumors about weird ritualistic satanic activity around Seely's castle um my research has never come with with anything conclusive um you know but that could be going back to you know as you mentioned that you know there were pentecostals there and from the perspective of an evangelical all other denominations of christianity are inherently satanic so it might be one of those religious bias situations. I've never been able to pin it down. Yeah, I know um, the the Pentecostal sect specifically was really known for speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. Oh uh, yeah, and depending on who you ask, that kind of strange version of worship, uh, you know. <laughs> um, the the other, but then there's other extremes like uh, you know, the odd, creepy ceremonies. Um, that we found that Joshua and Mark Bennett uh, discovered in uh, where Sombra sits. I think I showed you the photographs of that when you come around, you know, one of our earliest cases. But again, you know, where we certainly have signs of dark and creepy rituals where there is, you know, a pentagram painted in the blood of rat and pigeon corpses on the floor. Um you gotta wonder if that might be, you know, satanic panic teenagers that need therapy and not an actual formalized intellectual movement. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of pieces to it. I mean, there's, um, especially during the '80s and '90s, this being kind of one of those odd places with a lot of. New Age mysticism and, you know, backwoods mountain witches, but we're still in the thick of the Bible Belt buckle. So during the 90s and, you know, part of the 80s, during what we call the satanic panic when daytime television is freaking out, you know, you could have every side from, you know, an innocent pride march that's being called satanic uh, to really, really, really creepy you know, underground malevolent activity uh, deserving of a season of HBO's True Detective. You know, you've got, you know, it's kind of one of those things to where I don't want to say it didn't happen because, well, I know that, you know, the mountains around here are the perfect territory if you do, if you want to form a creepy cult. Most certainly there have been signs of all kinds of malevolent organizations but on the other hand you know often you know new age spiritualism or just plain being liberal is often labeled as evil and satanic by a lot of that you know southern evangelical culture so sometimes it's legit sometimes it can be a bit of a witch hunt 
And, you know, those kind of things take a lot of scrutiny because it's not safe to say that it's rampant and prolific, but I also can't say that it doesn't exist here either. Now, you said that you have uh, been asked to consult with the police even occasionally on uh, some of the stuff they found, right? Yeah, uh, this especially back in the 90s. Um, I think, uh, especially when I was doing a lot of work with White Wolf, um, I remember one time there was a set of murders in Florida, and there was a lot of, oh, it's vampire-related. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, the Kentucky Vampire Cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I've done a show on that. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. um, When that, in the fallout of all of that, why will the company sent me to Orlando to do a demonstration vampire LARP for the press and the police. <laughs> and they were just a, like, oh, yeah, A LARP? Weird. They had you go down to do a LARP for the police? Yeah, yeah to, to like demonstrate to the, you know, whole bunch of vampire LARPers to show the press and to show the police what a vampire live action game should be and is so they could differentiate it. You know, so yeah, I kind of ended up doing a little bit of damage control back in the 90s. And uh, yeah, especially around here in Asheville, you know, uh, those of us who have been working with Joshua and in the circles, occasionally when totally weird stuff happens, we might get a phone call and a bit of a consultation. Really, what we're being asked for in those situations is profiling. You know, the uh, law enforcement will trying to be figure helping figure out, you know, are these a handful of teenagers that need some therapy or do we have a large organization of felons on our hands? You know, because it takes a little bit of an anthropology background to be able to suss out what is a legitimate organization versus what is just kind of a moment of art or rebellion, depending. Oh, that's fascinating, man. And oh, yes, it was Rod Farrell. That was um, the Kentucky vampire. Uh, so, yeah, that whole saga is kind of wild. And that's crazy that, that you were the person that they sent down to do damage control <laughs> on with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked to the uh, media well. And um, yeah, it was kind of funny. It was in this uh, huge hotel. It was kind of a little convention situation of the bunch of the Orlando players and players from all over the Southeast. And I remember there was quite the police presence, but they weren't patrolling it. They were watching, they were analyzing. And the press was there filming and asking a lot of questions. And then afterwards they were like, oh, this is nerds playing pretend and doing paper, scissors, rock. There is nothing nefarious. No, were you the only one from White Wolf that was based out of Asheville? I think I asked you that before, but I no, there was actually a handful. Um, my, I ended up, uh, I, I call them my fairy goth mothers. Um, Nikki Ray and Jackie Cassida um, were both veteran role playing writers, and and they uh, were natives of North Carolina. I first met the two of them when I was a high school student. And uh, the two of them kind of put me under their wing and mentored me. Um, Jackie passed of COVID about two and a half years ago. 
Um, but myself and Nikki still stay in close contact. Also, uh, for a short window, um, the werewolf developer and their art developer, Ethan Skimp and Aileen Miles, um, lived in Western North Carolina, uh, kind of doing a model of the uh, work from home <laughs> years before it became popular. Um, in fact, there where they lived is not even a quarter of a mile from where my house is now. So, yeah, the, like Asheville, Western North Carolina has always been a little, we used to nickname it White Wolf North because um, the home office uh, for White Wolf at the time was in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's, um, I just think that's a, definitely another kind of curious aspect of it. Um, gosh, uh, I've been to, uh, was it Lake Geneva, Wisconsin before, which is, I guess now it's pretty gentrified, but I've heard uh, it used to be a pretty gnarly place back in the day. But that was um, where like the whole crew from Dungeons and Dragons had uh, originated from. In fact, I think that was yep, where yep. the Wizard Coast thing or whatever it was, was based out of. For, um, yep, yep. So, yeah, it's kind of another interesting niche, I guess, uh, or aspect rather of uh, Asheville. There's always been a really funny story that a lot of the the inspiration of what would become the world of darkness and a lot of the White Wolf franchises actually came about when uh, guys from Georgia are heading their way out to that area driving through Gary, Indiana, the industrial wasteland of Gary, Indiana, partially inspired that dark and foreboding aesthetic that would become White Wolf's Vampire. Interesting. I think I've been through Gary, Indiana, too, so I can kind of see what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's very post-industrial and almost apocalyptically deserted. Yeah, 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 certainly. Uh, well, it's um, it has been a fascinating chat, sir. I was uh, definitely very thankful that you uh, came on, and we'll have to have you back here at some point. Absolutely, and thank you for visiting me out in Western North Carolina and taking my tour. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I will uh, be back sooner than later. And uh, for all of you guys listening, too, I would highly recommend it if you uh, find your way out there to Asheville. And definitely consider visiting Asheville. It is a wonderful place. I had a great time. There's lots of different things to do there. There's lots of great live, live music, food, uh, thrift stores, record stores, bookstores. And, of course, you got all the cool uh, ghosty stuff and all this other things going on. So give it a consideration now that the weather's getting a little nicer. Well, on that note, we'll sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for your support with and for listening. And as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing. I took it to the goat chain We were raped, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my 
my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama jump down Turn around Do it for me Stick it out Say one two three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Hands tied blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, sonny What? 